0: Hello and welcome to the Highlights Podcast. I am Simon Goodacre, the Assistant Director of Communications and Marketing for the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Brandeis. And today I'll be speaking with Jack E. Davis, who earned a PhD from Brandeis in 1994. Jack is a Professor of History at the University of Florida and the 2018 recipient of the Pulitzer Prize for History for his book, The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea, published by Liveright, W.W. Norton. In the New York Times Book Review, Philip Connors wrote of the book, Davis has written a beautiful homage to a neglected sea, a lyrical paean to its remaining estuaries and marshes, and a marvelous mashup of human and environmental history. The book was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Nonfiction and the winner of the Kirkus Prize for Nonfiction, and included in the best of lists for the Washington Post, NPR, Forbes, and the Tampa Bay Times. We're excited to have you on campus for all this evening, Jack, and thank you very much for making time for the podcast while you're here. Uh, My pleasure. It's great to be back. Uh, I have to ask you the obvious question to start with. Uh, What were you doing when you found out that you had won the Pulitzer?
1: Well, I was on campus uh, in my office in a meeting with a graduate student, um, and I I should preface that by saying that I I was not aware uh, of the uh, Pulitzer uh, being announced that day. Uh, I didn't even know that my book had been nominated. The finalists are not um, announced before the winners announced, uh, and um, so it was completely off my radar screen, and I'm um, it's in the afternoon, April 16th, and I'm um, uh, discussing—actually, uh, re- re- I was really, in truth, I was reading the Riot Act to this uh, graduate student about his sloppy writing. And the, um, the phone started ringing in the office, uh, and my cell phone started exploding with text and voicemails, and it neither would stop. And so I excused myself for a moment, turned around, checked my text messages, and saw a, one uh, from my editor that said I'd won the Pulitzer. And I stood up. And uh, I voiced uh, certain words <laughs> uh, that I'll withhold here and then I literally went speechless and I had to slide the phone across the desk of the graduate students for him to read the text.
0: Wow. <laughs> I suppose yes, when you're dealing with quotidian matters uh, such as the students yeah that's exactly get right. that text and message I, yeah.
1: I should add his eyes bugged out when he read the text and I, I like to say I know what he was thinking, and he, that was, the meeting's over.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no more riot act for today. Right, exactly. Do. How did that
1: paper turn out, incidentally? <laughs> it turned out really wonderful. The, the final uh, was due the next week, and it was uh, quite clean and well, beautifully written. And uh, so I, I, I owe it to the Pulitzer, so I suppose. Fair enough. <laughs> and uh, before the Gulf,
0: you had already published the uh, An Everglades Province, sorry, An Everglades Providence, uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and the American Environmental Century in two thousand nine. And you're currently editing an edition of Wild Heart of Florida, a collection of personal essays and poems about natural Florida. Uh, what is it about the state and the surrounding region that interests you so much?
1: Well, I grew up in Florida, and uh, and so I've witnessed a lot of change uh, in the Florida landscape, and good and bad, uh, over over the years. And um, and there's this, even though to, to many people Florida seems very artificial, uh, very Disney-esque, palm trees and pastel colors. Uh, to me, there's a real sense of place there, and. Um, than I'm uh, familiar with uh, and uh, and I, I like to write about a sense of place in in my works when I when I was here at Brandeis I seriously considered uh, doing my dissertation on um, an environmental history of the Everglades but at the uh, but ultimately decided to uh, do my dissertation on race relations in Natchez, Mississippi, uh, which became my first book. I should, I should also add that I'm, I'm not just editing the, this book on Florida. I'm, I'm also writing a new book under contract with Liveright liverite uh, on uh, a cultural and natural history of the bald eagle. Uh, uh, you know, a bird you find in Florida, uh, but you find all over North America.
0: Yeah, I actually have a question about that later on, so I will, we'll get back to that. Um, um, on the Gulf though, uh, I did want to ask as well, the Gulf of Mexico, it's been in the news for all the wrong reasons uh, for over the last decade or so, hurricanes, the, the BP oil spill and so forth. What motivated you to write such a sweeping history that goes beyond the ecological disasters of the past few years?
1: Well, I, I felt for a couple of reasons. I felt that um, these disasters and all the media attention given to them had robbed a, the Gulf of Mexico of its true identity, and I wanted to restore that identity. The other reason is that um, American historians have uh, 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 overlooked the Gulf for the most part, um, and you don't. Nobody's written a has had written a, a comprehensive history before mine. The um, uh, if you look at high school and college U.S. history uh, textbooks, uh, you more than likely won't find the Gulf of Mexico in the, in the index, and if you do, um, it's only mentioned in passing. So I wanted to bring the Gulf into the, the American historical narrative um, by writing this, this, this sweeping history.
0: I've heard you say in other interviews that you wanted nature to be at the forefront of this work. And the chapters of the book are organized around natural characteristics of the Gulf, so estuaries, beaches, fish, birds, etc. cetera. Um, but you also use particularly notable characters, such as Rachel Carson, Ernest Hemingway, and Ponce de Leon uh, to animate the history. How do you manage the interplay between natural and human history as you're writing?
1: Yeah, that's that's a tricky thing sometimes. It's also fun uh, to try to figure out uh, that that balance and uh, the you know to establish those uh, those connections between the human history and and the natural history, and um, I. As you said, I organize the chapters around these natural characteristics because I wanted nature to be in the forefront. Estuaries, birds, fish, beaches, uh, rivers, uh, barrier islands, and so, weather, and so forth. And, but I recognize that my audience likes, uh, likes the human stories, too. And so I use a lot of these folks that you mentioned and others, uh, uh, native Gulf siders, uh, to, to help drive the narrative. So I'm telling their story as I'm also telling the story of the Gulf. And I, I pretty much learned how to do that when I wrote the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas book because the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas biography is really a dual biography. It's the biography of both uh, Douglas herself and um, the, the, the Everglades. Uh, and, um, and then I also have a, a writing partner, uh, Cynthia Barnett, who's a, a fabulous writer. Uh, an environmental writer and she does something similar uh, she, her last book was a uh, long listed for the National Book Awards uh, rain uh, natural Cult- cultural history and, and and so Cynthia reads everything I write in draft and I read everything she writes in draft and we don't we don't hold back punches <laughs> uh, and so that's also helpful too. And um, as you write about the region, you, you wrote about the uh, Aborigines
0: in the region, including the Apalachee, the, the the Tokabaga, and the Calusa, and um, how these tribes stood up to European invaders in the Gulf for up to 200 years before they were largely wiped out by disease. Um what first attracted the Europeans to the region? And I, I understand that initially the first Europeans didn't have such a good time in the Gulf, even though the uh, the aboriginal population was uh, in a, this bounteous uh, uh, location. Uh, could you give us maybe a little potted history of that? Yes, yeah,
1: um, certainly. Well, uh, of course, we all have heard the story about Juan Ponce de Leon going to Florida to, uh, to look for the uh, Fountain of Youth, and that's that's a myth. Um, his uh, contract with the, um, the, uh, the, the king was to go north, sail north of Puerto Rico, look for land, uh, and find um, precious metals, gold or silver, and slaves. Uh, and, it, you know, the, the need for slave labor really drove exploration once the, uh, the Spanish came to the New World because they were wiping out the labor force, the indigenous labor force that they had enslaved. And so they were constantly uh, sailing off uh, to new lands looking to replenish that, that labor force. And that's what brought Juan Ponce de Leon to Florida in the 1513s. And um, he didn't know that uh, the, the place he discovered, uh, La Florida, was, uh, uh, was actually part of a continent. He thought it was an island. So it was a, and he didn't know that the Gulf of Mexico, which he sailed into, uh, was the Gulf. He wasn't sure what kind of sea it was. And it was a, num- a number of years, 15, some 15 years before the, the Spanish discovered that the Gulf was the Gulf. And, and they met a lot of aboriginal people who knew about the Spanish before the Spanish knew about these aborigines because the, 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 the aboriginals uh, were uh, seafaring people. Uh, and they had a communication network that stretched across the Caribbean and to the Bahamas and Yucatan. And so they, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the native peoples around the Gulf of Mexico knew what the Spanish were up to. And, and so they resisted them. Um, and... Um, the, uh, and the Spanish ended up encountering everywhere they went uh, uh, these uh, native peoples who were resistant and powerful, uh, larger than they, uh, to, to the point that the Spanish admired them. Uh, and not only did they have to deal with that, they had to deal with the starvation. The, uh, the, the Spanish didn't seem to know how to feed themselves, even though they were in one of the bounteous uh, bo- uh, saltwater bodies in, in, in the world. Um, which is I find is one of the great ironies. Uh, they're starving to death as they're exploring, and even at one point, one expedition, there um, a number of the members of that expedi- expedition resorted to cannibalism.
0: Oh wow! Yeah. I hadn't realized that.
1: Yet the what you know, the Spanish accused uh, the aborigines of of, uh, of the Gulf of Mexico, uh, particularly those on the Texas coast, of, of being cannibals. And there's no, there's absolutely no truth to it.
0: And jumping forward a little bit, um, the Deepwater Horizon incident was not the first man-made ecological disaster in the Gulf. Uh, and your book chronicles many examples of humans' impact on the region throughout history, uh, including our relationship with the oyster and the snowy egret populations. <laughs> I was wondering, uh, could you give uh, readers a primer on, on the impact that, that humans have had on those two species? I thought particularly the oyster was quite interesting because uh, obviously we eat them, but they're, they've been used, their shells, for other purposes as well.
1: Well, one thing that the, when the Spanish arrived that, that uh, impressed them along with the people of the Gulf of Mexico were the shell mounds all around the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and the, uh, these mounds were, some of them refuse mounds, some of them were ceremonial, some of them were burial mounds. Uh, and, but um, whatever the case, they were indicative of the estuarine wealth of the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, the Spanish encountered uh, uh, oyster Bars or beds that went on for miles And miles and miles And when they saw these oyster beds They didn't see food like the Aborigines did Uh, They saw something that would destroy their ships And um, uh, And ultimately A huge toll is taken on Mainly in the the more modern Period in the late 20th Century post-World War II uh, On the uh, oyster population Around the Gulf of Mexico, pollution has a great impact, engineering projects that alter the currents, um, uh, that destroy the estuarine environments and destroy that delicate mixture of salt and fresh water that oysters need, and and over-harvesting of those beds as well. Uh, Egrets, the, the destruction of bird life in the Gulf of Mexico is really the first major human impact on the Gulf of Mexico in the late 19th century. Um, feathered hats were all the fashion in um, Paris and women's fashion in Paris and New York and in uh, London and other places. And so birds were being slaughtered um, by the millions around um, the Gulf of Mexico and uh, many other parts of the globe, uh, for that matter, uh, for their feathers. And whole rookeries were being wiped out. We're talking about a rookery of 100,000 birds might be wiped out in just a matter of a few days by by commercial hunters but that that uh, devastation also launched uh, the conservation movement in, in the Gulf of Mexico.
0: And I understand that population has somewhat uh, recovered, is that correct? It,
1: it has indeed rebounded and they are, they are an indicator species of how well we are doing with the environment. When I was a kid growing up on Tampa Bay um, about the only birds I saw were gulls and um, brown pelicans. Um, I don't ever recall seeing a snowy egret, a roseate spoonbill, certainly not a wood stork, not a bald eagle. And I'm talking in the early 1970s. And uh, about the only, and the reason why I didn't see them is because about the only fish I could catch was a croaker, or if I was really lucky, a, a speckled trout. And if the, Because the bays were in very bad shape then in, the, in uh, the inshore waters of, of the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, mainly from uh, wastewater pollution, but also from industrial pollution. Um, And that had devastated the estuarine environment and the marine life. When there's no marine life, you won't have the bird life. But we've cleaned up those waters, and that bird life has come back. It's really magnificent now. You also cite
0: the sport fishing, particularly of tarpon, as uh, having a major impact on the Gulf. Why is the fishing of tarpon such an impactful enterprise?
1: Well, as I write in the book, tarpon really launched a tourist industry in in the Gulf of Mexico in the late 19th century when a New York architect uh, hooked the first tarpon on record with a rod and reel. And once he did that, it set the sport fishing world on fire because everybody knew um, uh, if you caught a tarpon, that would be this wonderful fighting fish. And and it was was very common to catch 150 to 175, even a 200-pound tarpon in those days. And it's an offshore fish, but in the spring and the summer, it comes into the estuaries to feed. And so as I, as I write in my book, um, going tarpon fishing was like going uh, deep-sea fishing without having to go out to the deep sea. And, you, and you'd hook this, this wonderful fighting fish that would do these uh, remarkable aerial acrobatics for 35 minutes, 45 minutes, and tow your two-man skiff around uh, while, while doing so um and uh and you could catch you could catch a a few dozen in in a couple of weeks back in the late 19th century that's the second major impact was the the toll the sport fishing industry took on uh, the tarpon population by the late uh, 19th century by the turn of the century uh, the sport fishing community recognized and i should say sport fishing community i'm talking people Coming from the northeast, from the Midwest, from the British Isles to tarpon fish in the Gulf of Mexico, and by the turn of the century, they realized that they had taken a toll um, on the uh, that their sport had taken a toll on the on the population of the tarpon.
0: And has that population rebounded at all, or it, is it still?
1: It has rebounded, and uh, again, uh, uh, taking care of the estuarine environment is uh, is has been a major factor in that but also uh, tarpon fishing is still very popular but virtually everybody practices uh uh hook and release uh now and I should say tarpon aren't edible they're just full of bones they're extremely bony fish and when uh sport fishers were catching men and women and women loved to come down to the gulf sport fish as much as as the men did and in fact a woman from Kentucky held the the tarpon record uh, for seven years in the late 19th century. I think it was a 205-pound tarpon. And um, they would catch the tarpon, uh, have their picture taken with it, and throw it dead back in the water. Mm, I see. And the
0: landscape in, in both the eastern and western regions of the Gulf were further transformed by human intervention during the 20th century. Uh, what have been the most significant changes, and what, what has the ecological impact been?
1: Well, the ecological impact's been similar um, on uh, all around the Gulf of Mexico, but the major impact, as you stated, has been the, the um, uh, southwest, uh, western U.S. Gulf and the southeastern U.S. Gulf, so so southern Texas and southern Florida, and there the impacts has been uh, somewhat different on each side. In Florida, it's been uh, primarily residential development, packing in a lot of people uh, along the shore. Um, uh, creating new real estate by dredging bay bottoms to to make land uh, and build a condominium on on top of it Uh, and so creating these very dense uh, population centers on the uh, in in southwest Florida primarily after World War II and uh, and of course that has been devastating to the estuarine environment uh, because you have uh, runoff from stormwater systems that are overtaxed you have uh, septic tanks that uh, are leaky and uh, at times during the rainy, rainy season below uh, groundwater level. And then, of course, you have runoff from, from the roadways. And uh, this time of the year, our snowbird season in, in Florida, uh, the roadways are packed with automobiles. You have bridges and causeways connecting barrier islands uh, to the mainland, which alter the currents, which have an impact on the estuarine environment. Uh, of course, in southwest Texas, the, 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 the principal impact is from the petrochemical industry. And uh, you drive down the Texas coast, uh, and there's a rare moment, uh, it's a rare moment when you don't see a refinery for the oil and gas industry uh, onshore. People think that the impact of the oil industry is primarily offshore. Every day is an environmental disaster onshore because of the infrastructure that supports the offshore. Uh, facilities, um, whether it be those refineries or whether it be shipping canals, there are 10,000 miles of, of oil industry canals slicing up the estuarine uh, coast of, uh, uh, the, the, the coastal marshes of, of Louisiana as a consequence, uh, those 10,000 miles of, of oil industry canals. Are uh, contributing significantly to the erosion of uh, Louisiana. It's losing 25 to 30 square miles of, of land mass a year, and along with that, the the Cajun culture, culture, and um, you know generations old, um, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, fishing culture.
0: Uh, you mentioned earlier you're, you're, you've signed a contract to write a new book, uh, about, which I understand is employing the working title, A Bird of Paradox, How the Bald Eagle Saved the Soul of
1: America. Uh, can you give us any previews or sneak peeks oh, sure. into that project? I, I'd, I'd love to. <laughs> so uh, let me say why I, I chose to write about this um, uh, the, uh, this bird. Uh, there a couple of reasons. Um, but uh, one of the principal reasons was that you know, environmental writers such as myself um, uh, environmental writers uh, tend to write for the choir, and I don't. I don't think I did that with the Gulf book uh, so much. Uh, I was really reaching for a broader audience. Um, but uh, the bald eagle is a subject that will appeal to all Americans, no matter your political background. And I want an environmental book to draw a politically diverse, diverse readership. Everybody loves the bald eagle, whether you're a red, white, and blue American or you're a tree hugger, um, and uh the other thing is that it's this wonderful success story uh this comeback we nearly wiped out the bald eagle in the lower 48 states in the 1960s primarily primarily with a ddt but also with habitat destruction um but we worked very hard to bring it back uh and the uh virtually every state around the country pitched in uh developed um restoration programs and uh and the, the effort has had tremendous payoff. Bald eagles are everywhere. Uh, and, they are show, and they are showing us. And at one time, scientists believed that bald eagles would not live around the pop, human population. But the bald eagles, you know, such as the raccoon or coyotes, but bald eagles will. They are nesting on golf courses or nesting in cul-de-sacs. Uh, and they're showing us that uh, we can live at peace with uh, a wild animal and enjoy it. Uh, and not diminish our quality of life. In fact, improve our quality of life. Um, and we've we've cleaned up the waters that the bald eagles depend on. It's just, it's a water bird, um, and it, needs, it lives around uh, fresh water or salt water, and its primary food is fish. And uh, if those um, bodies of water were not clean and we're not thriving with fish, bald eagles would not be around. And when those waters are, if we all drink from the same water, right? Uh, wildlife and in humans and uh, in cleaning up those bodies of water we've improved our own quality of life but also last uh, thing I'll say is that uh, the bald eagle is you know the the founding bird it's the uh, the uh, the the, you know symbol of the U.S. and has been uh, the official bird of the U.S. since 1782 and in in those days uh, American identity was very much grounded in the, uh, in the, the, the natural endowments of North America. Uh, nature is what distinguished America uh, from uh, the great European nations. We didn't have a deep uh, history. We didn't have uh, a, a nobility. Uh, we didn't have this long um, uh, heritage in America beyond Native peoples, of course, which— Um, But what we had that distinguished us from the European nations uh, were these natural endowments, and lording over all of that, of course, was the bald eagle.
0: You know, I remember when I moved to the States almost 20 years ago, the first year I was here, I visited Dollywood in Tennessee, and <laughs> they have a bald eagle, injured yes, bald eagles. I know. They have, uh, they have a lot of uh, a lot of injured bald eagles there, and they did a, a whole bird show, and I remember the final bird, of course, that they bring out at the very end is a bald eagle, and the place just erupted. <laughs> yeah, the audience went completely crazy. It's
1: really remarkable. Wherever I give talks on the Gulf of Mexico, when my hosts introduce... Uh, or I mentioned that I'm writing this book on the golf uh, on the ball eagle, or I do. Uh, I get this collective, sigh, awe just from the audience and people come up to me afterward with, and everybody has a bald eagle story. Really? Uh, Everybody loves the bald eagle.
0: Well there's my bald eagle story. Not not the most thrilling probably (laughs) but there it is. Um, My final question for you. uh, I've read so many reviews of your book and everyone comments on the quality of the writing and your ability to capture and hold the attention of the reader throughout. I was wondering if you have any tips for uh, our budding historians about how to make their own writing more compelling?
1: Well, I was fortunate that when I was here at Brandeis, I had some um, professors who were model writers, Christine Harriman, Jacqueline Jones, who was my dissertation advisor, David Hackett Fisher, who trained me in environmental history, um, and, and of course, Pulitzer Prize um, uh, winner. And I um, uh, and, and Mickey Keller, they, um, they all demanded uh, good writing, and they all offered examples of, of good writing, uh, and they were, they were inspiring. Uh, and so the, my tips are to surround yourself, if you can, by people like that. Find yourself a writing partner, uh, as I do, in, as I mentioned earlier, in Cynthia Barnett. Uh, read good writing. Uh, find the writing that you like. Read it. Emulate it. Write down. Study it as you're reading it. Uh, write down words you like, write down phrases you like, uh, and find places. Use them. And, um, and of course, writing, uh, developing writing skills is like developing uh, musical skills. It requires practice, practice, and practice. Well, once again, the book
0: is The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea, published by Liveright, W.W. Norton. Jack, thanks again for making time for our podcast, and I look forward to hearing your talk this evening. Uh, And to our listeners, I hope you'll join us next time on the Highlights podcast.